Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. Brenna, the time has come. We are talking about... P.S. I still love you. Sorry. Yes, it's... Uh... <laughs> so happy to re-enter this world so listeners this is the sequel to to all the boys i've loved before by jenny han which we read gosh joe a year ago yeah i think it was our third episode yeah and i was just so happy to get back to these characters i have some thoughts obviously <laughs> about the adaptation i have some questions but in general i'm just just what a just a pleasant joyful world to return to yeah, this is also the first romantic drama that we have ever had a sequel to. So we've talked a mm -hmm. bunch about dystopian sequels and action sequels, but we've never actually had a realist YA sequel to discuss before. Right? Like contemporary romance and a sequel. Love it. Love it, love it, love it. Mm -hmm. Now to help us navigate some of this uncharted territory. Oh, I'm so excited! <laughs> we have brought in our friend, Jen Crocker from university, and she also took the YA literature course with us. So, hi, Jen. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me. She's part of our origin story, and she's here. Hi, Jen. Hi. <laughs> it's actually, like, super, super exciting, because not unlike Brenna and I, when we first started this podcast, we haven't kept in touch as well as we probably should have mm -hmm. so this is a fantastic excuse to bring you back in yes i'm so excited to be here thank you guys so much for including me yay i'm just delighted that we the three of us get to have this conversation <laughs> about a fun little joyful movie and book like this so let's imagine we're in the Loeb cafeteria and we have an yeah. order of french fries <laughs> and oh, we're gosh. waiting for class to start and Joe's eating those tiny powdered donuts that he lived on in university. Oh man. <laughs> I gained like 15 pounds in university because of those things. <laughs> Literally every time I see them in a grocery store, I'm like, oh, Joe donuts. <laughs> I actually had some the other day. They're still terrible. And yet I still ate all six of them. <laughs> Okay, so Jen, since you are our special guest, why don't you let us know what your history is with To All the Boys I've Loved Before? Had you read this series before? Had you watched the first film? Okay, so I had not read the series before. Last year, I was on a plane somewhere and I had heard all the craziness about this being huge on Netflix. And so I decided to download it for my flight and I watched it and I was in love. And I think when I got home, I watched it again almost immediately. So I've watched the first one a few times. And I was like, it's funny when you're watching it and you're thinking like, okay, I'm a full grown adult. But I yeah. love this. And like, I love Peter Kavinsky. So it's funny to feel that way as an adult, but I absolutely loved it. And then I now have some thoughts on the second one that I'm uh, excited to share. <laughs> It's funny that you say that, Jen, because Joe definitely has some inappropriate thoughts about John Ambrose McLaren. Oh! Okay, you know what? I will not be slut-shamed. These movies in particular are basically old person inappropriate feelings bait. Yes! Okay, thank you. Oh my gosh. I felt so inappropriate when I was like, oh my gosh, this guy is supposed to be in high school. Yeah, I feel like our only defense is that they are actually in their 20s. Yeah. It still doesn't make it appropriate given what age we are. And yet, <laughs> as I said, I will not apologize. I'm sorry, but there are some scenes in this movie where Noah Santaneo looks 32. So I feel yeah. like it's fine. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if he's had a rough year, but he definitely looks a little bit older. A yeah, little more does. wear and tear on the tires there. Yeah, he does, yes. Yeah, and it's funny because um, I don't remember the name of the girl who plays Lara Jean, but she doesn't look any older. So there are some, some no. scenes where I'm like, hmm, huh, I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> if anything, Lana Condor looks younger in this yeah. film to me than she did in the first one. And speaking of her looks, they did some, they must have done some reshoots or something after she cut her hair. 
because oh, the bad holy, wig. oh yes. my gosh, you can see her short bob and then the wig on top of it or whatever they did, the extensions or something. But I was like, do they not even care? <laughs> uh, the answer is no, Jen, because they've got Netflix money and they know that this thing is going to be a runaway success regardless of how bad the wig looks. <laughs> that is true. That is true. But I was watching and I'm thinking like, this is so not important, but yet I can't stop staring at it. I never notice those things. Like, I am not <laughs> capable of noticing those things. And yet, in the scene where she's standing talking to John Ambrose McLaren, when she's, like, apologizing to him, I was like, um, why did they attach two pieces of black fabric to her head? Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. very bad. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we are getting ahead of ourselves. Yes, yeah, sorry. We need to walk it back to the beginning. So, Brenna, we need you to tell us what is the deal with the book? Okay. And it is so different, hey? I forgot how differently the film ended than the first book. Yeah. And so I watched like the first, I don't know, half hour of the film before I'd opened the book and wildly confused myself. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. I had the Netflix reminder and that was helpful for addressing where the film, the first film ended. Oh, because yeah. then I was like, oh, right. Because everything to do with the hot tub has already been already addressed. Happened. Yeah, yes. that's true. And it's difficult too because the first film is, or the first book is so sort of surprisingly comfortable in the ambiguity of how the love triangle is wrapped up that when you open the film and you're like, oh yeah, no, they're just together. Okay, 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 I'm catching up, mm -hmm, I'm catching up. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, and I, that's one thing I really want to focus on today is the way love triangles are handled in this because I think the book does a really interesting job and the film for obvious reasons has to flatten that out somewhat, but okay, we'll get there. Uh, so for <laughs> listeners who have read To All the Boys I've Loved Before, you may remember that it ends on a bit of a cliffhanger is too strong a word but it ends with a fight at the christmas party mm -hmm. and this book opens right up after the fight at the christmas party so where the first book went from september to december this book goes from january to april basically mm -hmm. may i guess january to may so we open just after that fight and laura jean is realizing that she's fallen for peter um and she's written him this love letter again with the letters child um and she goes over to his house and she expects him to want to read it and they have like this sort of almost like meet cute part two kind of fight not fight thing and they decide they're going to be together in a relationship and they try to do like another one of their contracts where they promise they're never going to break each other's hearts and all that sort of stuff yeah with the contracts <laughs> Enough with the contracts. It made me feel like I was reading Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> Fifty Shades of Pink, I think, would be yeah, more different kind, <laughs> Different kind of contracts. Yeah. Yes, thankfully a little bit more G-rated in this case. Yes, yeah. So this is like the happy part of Laura Jean's life, and she's establishing this relationship, and she's sort of more comfortable in her role as being like the Margot replacement, mom replacement at home because Margot's gone back to school in Scotland, etc. But on the flip side, the hot tub tape has been released. So this happens in book two. For those who have only watched film number one, you're like, uh, hot tub is old news. It is not. It is brand new news for the book. Yeah, I think half the book is dedicated to the hot tub incident. Yes. Yeah. It's And you know, it's funny, Joe, when we did this first episode, you were like, I don't know what they're going to do with movie number two, because the hot tub is all of movie number one. Mm-hmm. And mm -hmm. it's it's true. I stand by it. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's a choice that has larger ramifications for the franchise. So obviously the rumor spreads that they are having sex in the hot tub, which they weren't, but the video gets circulated widely. Someone uses it in a class presentation by accident. It's pretty traumatic and awful for Laura Jean. And Peter feels like he has to be able to protect her from this and he can't. And so there's this like little bit of brewing conflict in their relationship. Well, and also some nice breakdown of gender roles, right? Where Peter feels like he has to be the man and yes. make her problems go away. And he discovers that he can't because no. internet. Although it does get yeah. undercut by the dad just dealing with it. Mm -hmm. Which I kind of feel like, I don't think that would work. Like it's on the internet. I don't think your dad can stop things from being on the internet. Absolutely not. It would just pop up on another site. Yeah. So underscoring all of this kind of tension between Lara Jean and Peter and the video. Oh, and also the fact that uh, it's pretty obvious that Peter's ex-girlfriend, Jen, is the one who leaked the video. On the, f the other half of that is that Lara Jean receives a letter in the mail from John Ambrose McLaren, who is one of the boys who she wrote to 
in the first book or one of the boys whose letters got circulated in the first book and they become pen pals and Laura Jean just neglects to mention the whole part where she has a boyfriend named Peter Kavinsky just does Mm -hmm. not come up in the letters it's never a good time it's never Hmm. a good time apparently um and so they get thrown together by virtue of the fact that the place where Laura Jean is volunteering his grandmother lives there and so they get kind of thrown together several times through that nexus and also there's this treehouse in the backyard of a neighbor house and the house has sold the treehouse is going to be ripped down and it's where Laura Jean and Peter and Genevieve and Chris and another guy Trevor, Trevor. who could care and <laughs> in the book who could care <laughs> yeah but in the movie, Ross Butler. I do love that mm-hmm. actor. Yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. And John Ambrose McLaren. I'm going yep. to call him John Allen Ambrose. Anyway, John Ambrose <laughs> McLaren. So they used to all hang out there as kids. So they decide to have, well, Laura Jean, obviously, decides to have a party to, like, say goodbye to the treehouse and dig up the time capsule that they buried there. And that kicks off a whole bunch of emotional stuff around the Jen and Peter baggage. And mm-hmm. Peter realizes that there's been a bit of flirting between Laura Jean and John Ambrose McLaren, and he was not aware of it. Mm-hmm. And, and also, there's also a big game of assassins. Yes, I was just going to say, they also <laughs> kick off a game of assassins for reasons. I'm glad <sighs> that got cut out of the movie, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> yeah, me too. Didn't care about yeah, it at all. It really doesn't work in the book, except to force people who might not otherwise interact together. Yeah, that's literally yeah. all it does. <laughs> it's literally all it does. So anyway, because of the game of assassins, people get thrown together. So... Laura Jean is forced to tell John Ambrose McLaren that she's sorry that she didn't tell Peter and she's forced into a conversation with Jen where she realizes that there's all this horrible stuff going on between Jen's parents and that Peter is really just trying to be a good friend to her. Mm-hmm. So there's all of these conversations that get forced by the Assassin's game. Laura Jean wins for the first time ever in the history of her playing Assassin's. And the other important part is that there's like this very romantic dance at the old folks home (laughs) um, where John Ambrose McLaren and Lara Jean almost share, well, they do share a moment. They share a very romantic dance and then there's like a snowstorm and a, is that the same night, the snowballs and everything? No, that's in the film. Yeah. No, there's a, they have a snow thing in the book. Yes, but it's not the same night. No, it's the night when they're it's planning. It's one of the nights it. when they're planning and right. they get stuck there. So they have to sleep over and then right. they go out and they have a snowball fight. Right. And it's revealed that it was actually Stormy. Yes. <laughs> John Ambrose McLaren's grandmother who has orchestrated the entire thing because she thinks that Lara Jean should be playing the field and having all these exciting incidents in her young life. Yes. And in the book version, they put on coats. And in the movie version, they don't. And I had an issue with that. <laughs> okay mom (laughs) (laughs) anyway they finally sort of come to this or Laura Jean comes to this realization that although she could love John Ambrose McLaren and maybe is halfway there already she already loves Peter he's already sort of set up camp in her heart so she's gonna just have to play that (laughs) that one out Uh and um, she has a really actually I think a really lovely scene with John Ambrose McLaren where she tries to explain this to him and then she goes and finds Peter and they decide that no contracts no trying to like protect or put boundaries around themselves they're just gonna be in a relationship uh, Uh the end end book two yes So ladies, what did we think of this as a sequel, as a standalone property? What do we think? And we're just talking book now, right? Yeah. movie, yes. Yes. It's the hardest part of the podcast is being like, we can't talk about the movie just yet. (laughs) Like, I have thoughts. Book-wise, I hated going over the hot tub stuff again because Mm. we kind of dealt with that already. And I had a lot of problems with the Peter, Genbiev, Jen thing. As a woman who can uh, feel very similar to Lara Jean in terms of the, like, not being able to get over jealousy stuff, I really felt seen with Lara Jean's uh, thoughts on this, so. It's rough to go through it with her, if only because it reminds you, or it reminded me a lot of being back in high school and being caught in the kind of whirlpool where one thing can become all-encompassing and it feels like it's dominating your entire life. It's difficult because, of course, this is Lara Jean making the decision that they're going to have this relationship, right? And it's real for the first time, but that gets undermined by these rumors and the constant re 
recirculating of the video and having to explain herself. So that's difficult. And I feel like this is actually the stronger part of the book because I got a little frustrated with Lara Jean mm -hmm. later on as the book mm -hmm. proceeds because it kind of felt like she was acting out of character and yeah. that frustrated me. Like it felt more like a typical setup. How do we get a love triangle into this mix? Yeah. Yeah, I think I, I think this is definitely a place where like the movie ended up doing the books like a massive disservice because after we finished doing the first episode, I read the rest of the series like right away and the hot tub stuff didn't bother me then because I was caught on the cliffhanger of the book more recently and I really wanted to know how it was going to resolve because that of course is the like the pin that has not dropped at the end of the first book is that this hot tub thing happened and if you've seen the film you know something's going to happen with it but like you don't you don't have all of that mm -hmm. but now yeah, there's too much baggage yeah there's just so much familiarity with the way the film has addressed it that I think the book suffers as a result in a way that's like probably not fair but also wildly inescapable because yeah. it does feel like oh my god are we seriously talking about the hot tub again like seriously uh, yeah. yeah and at the end of the first movie we did a lot of like when she went to see him with the letter and they got back together they did the whole like no contracts just relationship thing so that yeah. it felt like we were redoing it again in this book yeah i mean it works in the first film which is the, pro yeah. the problem right like it works in the first film and i wonder if there's any way around it but it does definitely sort of wreck frankly book number two <laughs> i have hopes yeah. for book number three in this context because it less that has been rehashed but like yeah it makes book number two really really hard and hard to adapt to i think like they have to make some odd choices as a result uh -huh. so thinking about the book do you two feel like it's kind of split into two like the first half is dominated by the hot tub stuff which we've addressed is a little hard to come back from because of the first film but then there's all the second half of the book, which is dominated by the feelings of distrust between Peter and Lara Jean, and then also this introduction in a really big way of John Ambrose McLaren. Yeah, totally. It's like once the hot tub stuff is dealt with, then we just move right away to John Ambrose McLaren and this like love triangle, and there was no sort of, I don't know, it just felt like separate like that. In many ways, what makes John Ambrose McLaren such a safe and inviting harbor for Lara Jean is the fact that he goes to a different school. So, like, yeah. he hasn't been caught up in the drama, although she does find out that he has seen the video and he's just actually pretty cool. <laughs> but I think that's a really important part of it. And it means that it means that Jenny Han makes this decision to not show a lot of overlap between those two worlds. And I get why that's comforting from a character perspective for Laura Jean, but it's also really kind of, yes. Yeah, stilted for the reader who is like well lives don't not overlap like that yeah there's a little too much compartmentalization yeah yeah i agree with that i know that the love triangle is ultimately quite constructed and shoehorned in like i don't disagree with what you're saying there but i like what jenny han does with the love triangle because it feels very authentic to the way feelings do develop particularly at that stage of life and i'm just thinking about the fact that like often in YA love triangles we already know the person who the protagonist is quote-unquote supposed to be with like the Peter is really explicit in a lot of YA love triangles and it's just like this other person is just a distraction I'm not saying that the Peter isn't explicit here because obviously we all know she's going to end up with Peter but what I find interesting is how much time and attention the narrative gives to the possibility of John Ambrose yeah one thing I was disappointed in losing from the film so the, the film makes it so that the kiss between John Ambrose and Laura Jean is all about Peter. And in the book, it's not. It's Laura yeah. Jean exploring a potential relationship with another person for herself. She's not even thinking about Peter when she kisses John Ambrose in the book. And mm -hmm. I liked that. Like, I liked the idea that another romantic possibility could be a true possibility and not just filling some conflict space, if that makes sense. No, that's a really good point, actually. Because in the book, you're right, it was very much like not about Peter. It was about her. But, you know, I'm a loyal Peter Kavinsky lover, so <laughs> that's where my, uh, you know, I was reading it and I was like so mad at her because I was just like, Peter would not like this. But then I was also mad at Peter. So I kind of, there's a lot of conflict there. But you're right. That's a really good point that like, it was just solely about her and not about like, Peter's making me upset. I'm going to like, sort of investigate how this feels. 
I think to me, the second book feels like Jenny Han has made a very deliberate course correction. Like she realized she didn't set up Josh well enough in the first book yeah, as yeah. an alternative. Like it's so obvious that Josh is an outlier and he's not going to be the one that Lara Jean ends up with. Yeah, so yeah. in the second one, it feels like she's paying much more deliberate attention to saying, actually, no, here is another guy and he might even be better than yeah, Peter. Yeah. Because you start to see some of the more obvious flaws that yeah. Peter is doing, right? So we've got the fact that he doesn't write her an original Valentine's note. He just cribs it and then takes credit for it. The last piece of pizza. He always takes the last piece of pizza. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like it, it feels a little bit more like a real lived-in relationship where you, you're past the honeymoon stage and you start to see oh, this is a real human being and they don't do everything perfectly because it's not a romantic comedy, yes. right? Because we know from the first book that Lara Jean lives inside these romantic dreams, yeah. right? So the second book, I think, does a much better job of that. And I I genuinely really like John Ambrose McLaren as a character. I like him for her, too, in a lot of ways. Like, I think... Oh, he's a much better choice. It's just that we have already settled on Peter by this point, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you said it, Jen. It feels like a betrayal, right? Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. we don't want her to be with this guy because we've already seen her with Peter and we love them. Yeah. Yes, Definitely. It's interesting, too, because in the first book, again, that relationship with Josh is not really about Laura Jean. It's about her unresolved about feelings Margo. for Margot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and it's about Josh's unresolved feelings around Margot. And this, like, it reminds me of, uh, we just did Little Women, Jen, not oh. that long ago. And, like, the way that, um, what's-his-face... Christian Bale, whatever, the way he's like, I'm just going to, yeah, Lori, the way he's just like, I'm just going to marry a different sister. Like, Yes, exactly like that. Oh my God, like, the worst, the worst. I know. And that sister, that always bothered me because I saw the new Little Women twice. And that bothered me because I was like, he has been in love with your other sister for so long. And then now you're just like, oh, let's get married. Okay, cool. Yeah, this is fine. Bad for me. Yes. I so appreciated that in the new one, though. I love the fact that they actually took the time to show us what happens between Lori yeah. and Amy, because that's one of the problems that, frankly, that a lot of these YA properties do, right? Is that they're not willing to put in the time and energy to show us what it's like when these people actually have to interact with each other, right? Yeah. They just want to do the love. Yeah. I'm so eager to fall in love. I think one of the most interesting things about this as a sequel for me is that we actually have to see how it plays out. Yes. What happens after Happily Ever After. Yes. Yes. Which is why I'm interested, because I haven't read the third book yet. I'm going to now. But <laughs> why I'm interested to see what the third book and movie are going to be like. Because Me now too. we've had two books and movies that have them sort of go with this Happily Ever After. So, like, what's left for the third one? So... I'm it's very interested. What funny, Jen, I was so obsessed with finding out what happened in this story that like while <laughs> we were recording the podcast last time, I was putting the books on hold at the library like, while we were recording. It's like, I had to find out what happens next. <laughs> That's going to be me. I'll confess, Brenna, you suggested that even in the second book, there's no question that we know she's going to end up with Peter. I didn't feel that way. I actually thought that this second book was going to end with her deciding that she and Peter weren't working and that she should try something new and that the third book would then be her finding her way back to Peter. Mm. Yeah, so I, I was surprised that. that we put that tie back onto it and say like, no, she's back with Peter and things are going to be great. Because I'm, I'm just like you, Jen. I thought, well, where's the conflict going to be in the third book then? Yeah, exactly. Is it just going to be like, oh, they're perfectly happy and we're going to have a few more fights about whatever rumors because he's popular and she's not and that kind of thing again. I'm so disinterested in revisiting this because we've now had two almost identical endings and I don't want to just do more rumors, more Jen, more, yeah. oh, there's somebody else. And Brenna, I know you can't say because you actually oh, know what yeah. happens. Yeah. <laughs> I guess part of this is I just, I think it's a weird choice on Jenny Han's behalf to say, you know what, I'm going to deliver the exact same happy ending as I did a second time around. I will say that in the third book, well, these two books have only been like about four months each. Mm -hmm. The third book stretches over their entire last year of high school. Oh. Okay. And has a lot more about, is a lot more about Laura Jean figuring out who she wants to be in the world and 
whether okay. or not a Peter type person can actually fit into that. Oh, interesting. Right. So it's a lot more about Laura Jean herself. And I actually think that's sort of the arc of the series as a whole is like the first one is boyfriend, 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 boyfriend. And the second one is like, but also other people in the world. And then the third one is like, oh, but also me. Okay, that's okay. okay that's good then. <laughs> it's worth reading. I will tell you that. Okay, good. <laughs> I mean, we're going to have this conversation again in a year's time because yeah. they're already moving ahead with an adaptation of the third book. I was going to say, have they greenlit that? They have. They're already shooting it. Yay. I thought they filmed them two and three at the same time. Almost, yeah. Okay. They took a couple months off oh, okay. after the second one and then they immediately went into it. So th to be honest, they probably already have it ready to go. Because oh, I think they realized that the two stars, Lana Condor and uh, Noah Centineo, they're too popular yeah. yeah they wouldn't be able to get them back for the third film unless they did it immediately yeah, yeah i could see that i didn't even think of that it is funny it's like this cast especially with the addition of more screen time for trevor in this episode it's very much like uh netflix's greatest hits like yeah. <laughs> oh yeah here are all yeah. the people we've launched and we're gonna make them keep working here until like we literally can't keep them chained to yeah. the netflix studio lot anymore Yes, and if people want to hear us speculate on that, go back and listen to our Let It Snow episode mm -hmm. from Christmas, where we basically speculated that Netflix has secret handcuffs on <laughs> all of the people that work on their yeah. shows and movies, because they just seem to appear over and over again. There's also no other explanation for those people signing on to that horrible Let It Snow nonsense. <laughs> oh my gosh, so terrible. <laughs> um... <sighs> Shall we transition over to the movie? Roll or that do we want to talk? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I said what I wanted to say about the love triangle, so I'm fine if we want to roll it. <laughs> All right. Hey. Hi. Say it out loud with me. 11 o'clock. 11 o'clock, like always. Have fun. Not too much fun. I think this is from the real soccer team. <laughs> Sometimes I wish my boyfriend was more anonymous. Heavy is the head that wears the crown. Nope. That's your crown. Oh, oh no, no. This is all you, boo -boo. I don't want This it. is all you. I don't you. want it, though. That's for you. John Ambrose McLaren. Oh, my God. Dear Laura Jean, I couldn't believe when I opened that letter and it was from you. It's been, what, five years? Hi. What is going on in that head of yours? Remember when you asked me who got the other love letters and I said someone from Model UN? He's actually volunteering with me. Thought I saw you. I'm gonna need that letter back. I need proof that someone actually liked me in middle school. <laughs> Everyone liked you in middle school. I didn't care about everyone. Why did I write these stupid love letters? I think it's exciting. I have a boyfriend. Almost every one of my love affairs overlap with another one. Nobody compares to you. I thought having a boyfriend meant the idea of other boys left your mind completely. I didn't want to be thinking about what might have been, but I was. I can stick around and help clean up. No, no I think I can help my girlfriend clean up. Okay. So here is some information about the film version. P.S. I still love you. So interestingly enough, this is partially done by the same team, but also partially not. So in the first film, we had a female director, which at the time we were very excited about because we didn't know how many of them we would get mm -hmm. in Susan Johnson. And for the sequel, she has stepped aside. So she's still executive producing, but she's handed the directorial reins over to the director of photography from the first film. So this film, the new one, the second one, is directed by Michael Fimogneri. Probably said that wrong. Can I jump in here? Mm -hmm. It's just really interesting that you said that. I did not know that until you talked, as normally I don't. Because uh, imagine if I did research for the show. But <laughs> Who has time? I did find that this installment was a lot more visually interesting than the first. Like I'm thinking of yes. some of the scenes in the aquarium, for example. There just seemed to be a lot more attention to light and shadow and backdrop. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean that in a bad way for the first one. The first one just felt very conventional. And there were just these moments of really like interesting visual stuff going on in this one. So I'm not surprised to hear that context from you. 
Yeah. So the other important distinction is that the first film had a single screenwriter in Sofia Alvarez, and she is back for the sequel, but she is also joined by a male screenwriter, Jay Mills Goodlow. And Brenna, I doubt that name sounds familiar, but nope. he is also the screenwriter of Everything Everything. Uh, previous episode. That explains several things. Okay, go on. <laughs> We have most of the same cast. So we've talked about Lana Condor. We've talked about Noah Centineo. John Ambrose McLaren is played by Jordan Fisher, who is not a well-known actor, but he is well-known for musical theater people. He's appeared in a bunch of different live productions. So a lot of people recognize him from NBC's Rent Live earlier last year. Joe. That's what it was. He was Mm -hmm. also in The Secret Life of the American Teenager. Oh my gosh, Brenna, I can't with you. (laughs) (laughs) He was in nine episodes. He played Jacob. Okay, go on. (laughs) Okay, so we have Janelle Parrish back as Margot, Anna Cathcart as Kitty once again, Madeline Arthur as Christine or Chris. I don't know why they refer to her as her full name here because she is literally never referred to as Christine. New additions include Holland Taylor as Stormy from the Old Folks Residence. And then, of course, we also have... Dad. Yes. Yeah. Playing their father, we've got... John Corbett. John Corbett. John John Corbett. Corbett. (laughs) Sorry, I lose names when I podcast, so yes. John Corbett. And we also have not talked about it, but he gets his own love subplot with their next door neighbor, who is Trina Rothschild, and she is played by Soraya Blue. And in book three, we'll find out how Margot feels about that. P.S. Not good. Not good. Of course. Really? P.S. Not good. It's how it opens. The third book opens with Margot throwing a bit of a fit. Okay. So big distinctions, as we've hinted at in this second film, is that the hot tub incident gets virtually no airplay. Mm -hmm. It gets a late mention, and it really has more to do with Laura Jean's concern about the time that Peter is spending with Jen. Well, the mention is the confession, right? That Jen was the one who released the hounds on uh, Yes. But I find it very awkwardly shoehorned in. Like, when it comes up in this film, it felt so out of place. And I was like, why are we mentioning this now? We've not addressed this at all this entire film. And it was really poorly integrated in. That was the moment where I was like, wow, if you didn't see the first movie, you have no idea what's happening right now. (laughs) I mean, I feel like Netflix is assuming that literally everyone on the planet has seen it three times. Fair. Yeah, very fair. (laughs) So instead of focusing on the hot tub incident, really this film is entirely dedicated to the burgeoning first stages of proper relationship and really Larjean's uncertainty about where she stands with Peter. So we spend a lot more time with her talking and fretting about being a good girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And we get to see other people starting new relationships. So Chris and Trevor start a relationship. Her dad and Miss Rothschild sort of dance around the idea of a relationship. And then, of course, the big introduction is that we've got John Ambrose McLaren, who in this film is not related to Stormy. He just happens to also be volunteering at Bellevue. And, you know, there's other minor changes, like they don't have a World War dance, they have a star dance and some other (laughs) Can I I rewind you? Because I actually think that's an interesting uh, and important bit that they change in the film version as a way Oh, by not having him? Maybe just to cue this up, one important thing I had completely forgotten is that if you go back and watch the end of the first film, John Ambrose McLaren is introduced. He is played by a white actor. Yes. And they have recast him with Jordan Fisher, who is obviously African American. Mm-hmm. I frankly love this decision, mm-hmm. but as a result, it does, therefore, I think, make it difficult to argue that he is related to Stormy. Yeah. Although in the book, it's worth mentioning that they're not related by blood, right? In the book, oh, yeah. She's his step great grandmother by marriage. Uh, okay. But I just want to say, I think it's an interesting and important choice that the film makes to have him, instead of being sort of roped into the nursing home by his grandmother, the fact yeah. that he chooses to volunteer there, because mm-hmm. it's a it's a key distinction between Peter and John. Yeah. 
because she asks Peter to volunteer with her at Bellevue because they all have to volunteer somewhere in their final year, right? And she asks him to volunteer with her at Bellevue and he says no because he wants to go volunteer with his friends. And it's not a big deal in the moment. She's not controlling. She's like, okay, that's fine. It's a shame. Mm -hmm. Like, I would have liked to spend time with you, but I get it. But the fact that John Ambrose is willingly volunteering at this place where she is willingly volunteering, it draws them together in a way that is quite, I think, important given how little time the film is able to spend on some of the other sort of contrasts between him and uh, Peter. Mm -hmm. Can I also say about the cast before we leave the cast entirely? Sure. Anna Cathcart, way less annoying in this film than she was in the first one. Yeah, so Jen, you may remember that Brenna had a lot of issues with Kitty from the first <laughs> she was film. Just so annoying, and I, she's annoying in the book too. And part of it is just Kitty gets to grow up, and so Kitty gets to be less irritating. But they also scale Kitty's yeah. role way back in this film. Way back, yeah, she's barely in it at she's all. Barely in it. And I think my favorite Kitty-related moment is when in the film version, it's when they're in the grocery store, and and Laura Jean is like Miss Rothschild, um. My dad didn't send you that Valentine. Miss Rothschild's like, the Valentine address to Mrs. Rothschild didn't come from your dad that was written in glitter glue? I am shocked. And I was like, oh, you're you're even cooler in the film version than you are in the book. I love it. (laughs) Yes. And again, we've got a person of color cast in what I think is never specified in the book, but is, I mean, as always, our default tends to be white unless otherwise told. Yeah, and she tends to. Um, it's funny because I've been reading. Um, I've been reading a Becky Albertalli book, and I forgot how refreshing it is that Becky Albertalli tells you everyone's race, even the white characters. Like as part of the description of the character, it's like, oh yeah, that's not a default for her. It's nice mm-hmm. to see because I think it's publishing's default. Right. But I think she is written as like a pretty generic white lady in the book. Like she mm-hmm. she wears, and let me just say, as a generic white lady, this is my dream aesthetic, but she wears almost exclusively yoga pants, oversized yeah. cardigans, and hunter boots. So yeah, if I could it's afford hunter boots, aesthetic. that would be my aesthetic. <laughs> I really loved, because in the book, there was a lot of a lot of focus on the fact that John Ambrose was this perfect blonde looking white kid. Oh my kid. gosh, I got so frustrated and yes. annoyed with those descriptions. A I lot. was like, he sounds like a Hitler youth. Exactly. <laughs> yes. And it was it's so interesting because from a book where, you know, the main character is a person of color of another ethnicity, mm-hmm. I found it so weird that she focused so much on his perfect blonde hair and how he was a perfect white kid basically. So it was really nice to have him be in the movie something different than that it's interesting that you raised that jen because we talked a lot in the first book about how race is handled and i think at the time we actually said that we found it kind of refreshing that there are moments where you get really strong cues that she has this korean background Mm -hmm. but it's not overstated because it's not an essential defining characteristic of who the character is but i think it plays so differently when we're thinking about a visual medium Mm -hmm. because at the end of the day the character's otherness for lack of a better term (laughs) is visible on the screen all the time right and i actually feel like the second film really leans into that not just by introducing several people of color characters in what were white roles in the book but also by having more extended sequences where they're preparing food like brenna we talked about the importance of food in the book Mm -hmm. so i liked that there were more of those kinds of moments and it's not like hit you over the head with a mallet kind of thing where Mm -hmm. you're saying don't forget she's korean but i don't know i appreciated it more in the second film it felt like they were really making deliberate efforts to say this is not an all-white world that Mm -hmm. laura jean just happens to be a different race in yeah i had the same feeling watching this as i did watching sex education which is yeah the world just looks like this and it's so comfortable to see it reflected on the screen Mm -hmm. and i don't I don't want to be like the typical white person being like, without them having to make like a huge issue of it. But I also do think (laughs) it is nice to see these actors of color getting to play roles that are not exclusively defined by their race. That Mm -hmm. said, it's also really nice to get away from, yeah, the (laughs) adoration of the blonde boy in the book, because that was a lot. It was one of the issues that readers had with the book series was that I think the five people that Laura Jean falls in love with are all white. Mm -hmm. 
So they'd already made the decision to go with a black character for Lucas. Yeah. And I got to say, I did not I did not love the way that Lucas was handled in either the book or the film this time around. Like that one single scene where he gets his moment to say, oh, well, at least you have options. Yeah. And I was just like, yeah, that's true. Wow. I mean, it's it's nice to acknowledge that, yes, queer people don't often have dating options in high school, but it's so flippantly handled, like... It honestly made me really angry at Lara Jean, where she's just like, I'm so traumatized by having to decide between these two boys. And you're just like, you are so selfish right now. Yeah. Well, it's definitely one of those moments where she's like, oh, yeah, she is a teenage girl. <laughs> yeah. You know, like she acts like a middle-aged housewife a lot of the time, but she yeah. is, in fact, a teenage girl. Yeah. Yeah. And then, it, like you said, Joe, just like that one comment where he's like, oh, there's no options for me and I'm not even out yet, that kind of thing. And then they just kind of like move on. And Peter's like, want to go? And she's like, okay, bye. Yeah, basically. And also, Lucas, goodbye from this movie because yes. we're not going to address you again. Yeah, exactly. He, gets <laughs> he was shrift. such a big part of the first one of being her like sounding board and being there for her. And then he has that one scene where he just like throws that out there. And then and that's exactly it, Brenna. You're right. Like being like a teenage girl. Right. Because there's no follow up from her mm -mm. whatsoever. <laughs> like that. He's put this out there, this thing that maybe he's struggling with. And then she's like, hey, bye. Peace out. <laughs> yeah. The book does it a little bit better. We do get a little bit more Lucas. I feel like we had this issue with the first film as well, which is that mm. we're so all in on the romantic triangle that we lose focus on some of the supporting characters. So the thing that really bothered me with this second film is that there's a deliberate effort to give Chris and Trevor a relationship, mm -hmm. but it comes to nothing mm -hmm. and it also then undercuts the amount of time that we spend with Jen so when she has her big reveal at the end of the film that helps Laura Jean to understand she can be with Peter because he doesn't have feelings for Jen it's so flat like it doesn't land for me okay can I confess something yes so when she's like meet me at the treehouse she texts meet me at the treehouse and like yeah. it's Jen who she's texted but like when the person comes up the staircase I was like who is that was that Chris with a hoodie on Right? You're like, oh, I don't even Jen. remember what this actress looks like. And I didn't even remember it was Jen until like she started talking. And then I was like, oh, that makes more sense. Okay. I also think one of the problems for Lucas in both his character construction in the book and in the film is that he's from a different friend group, right? And the book spends, uh, the first book spends more time on this idea of Laura Jean sort of attempting to integrate her friend groups and trying to navigate like the social world of high school. And the second book, and therefore the film, give absolutely no time to that. And so mm -hmm. as a result, we're so focused on this group of forever friends, except for not from middle school mm -hmm. days, that we lose Lucas entirely because he's not part of that world. Whereas I think in the first book, Han was much more interested in seeing, like, what does it look like for someone to lose their original friend group and then sort of cobble together this group of sort of social misfits? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it makes sense then why it becomes so important for her to do the time capsule, right? Yes. Because it's a reclamation of that original friend group and, and how they've all started Jen to move and... beyond. Yeah. Whereas in the film, you don't get a sense of any of that. No. When they all show up, all I could think of was, have these people even spoken to each other in years? <laughs> Especially when Trevor pops in. You're like, oh, hey. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> He's here. <laughs> and once again, Ross Butler parachuting into something and you're thinking, I'm sure you thought this was a great career move because it's so high profile. But uh, like, when do I get a movie with him as a romantic lead mm. because that's what I want. I think that is very well underscored by the fact that when the trailer came out and he posted it on his Instagram, his uh, caption was literally, I swear I'm in this movie. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that is so terrible. So, it's true yes. though, right? He just keeps showing up in these roles and you're like, this guy can actually act. Mm -hmm. He's a super charismatic actor. He is. Why do they keep giving him such crappy roles? Or and then he's in 13 Reasons Why, which is just like... A yeah, train wreck. No. Yeah. <laughs> Which, yes. Jen, Joe keeps threatening me that we are going to have to talk about it on the show. And I feel so Gosh. traumatized by the second season that I'm like, I don't think I can. You know, I didn't uh, I didn't finish the third season because I was just like, no, this is too dark for me. I can't do it. So I didn't even start the third season because the second yeah. season was like so profoundly upsetting. And I bring it yeah. up on the show regularly because, <laughs> because I think yeah. I she have... thinks it's going to get her out of it. We don't have to do the second <laughs> season. We could just do the first, first season. Yeah. 
because that's technically as far as the book goes. That's true. I would be okay with just doing the first. Honest to God, uh, there are very few things that I have watched that have stuck with me in such yeah. a profoundly upsetting way as the second season of that show. I know exactly what moment you're talking about. Too, yes! So I'm Lord. forever traumatized. Uh-huh. Okay. So, Brenna, you briefly mentioned that this film feels like it has more cinematically visually driven kind of moments yeah can we just talk about how fun some of these things are like i love that the movie opens with a homage to adventures in babysitting because i (laughs) freaking love that movie (laughs) i did too i love that too i don't think they all land like i think after her heart gets broken and she's drifting through the hallways. Oh, are you going to talk about the sort of karaoke moment? Yeah, I didn't I love, love that. Did you? I did not. <laughs> I was like, what am I watching? <laughs> it does play a little bit weird because we haven't really seen the characters kind of breaking the fourth wall yeah. and seemingly addressing the audience. But I kind of like that it felt like we actually get to see her interior. Yeah. Because I felt like the voiceover in this film bothered me a lot more than yeah. it did the first time around. Like, I found it very precious and not enjoyable. I don't think it picked the best moments of Laura Jean's character from the book to highlight. One other visual moment that I hated. And then we can talk about the stuff that worked. Okay. <laughs> the very last shot. You didn't like where... Oh, because it mirrors their lantern scene from the opening. Yeah, no, I got it. It also is an homage... <laughs> it's also an homage to the final scene of Greece, And I hated it in Greece in 1977. <laughs> I don't love it here. I don't know. I think it's kind of sweet. I guess my problem is that I don't think the movie commits to those moments of cheese enough. Like, I think you either have to do it or not do it. And it does this weird sort of in-betweeny thing that I just found annoying. Hmm. Jen, did that work for you? Um, you know... Overall, while you're talking about this, I'm trying to think about how I felt about it. And overall, I think I'm going to go a little bit deeper than we're trying to right now. But No, that's good. I didn't like the second one as much as I liked the first one, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of things that did work for me, quite honestly, mm-hmm. because I really didn't love this one. I didn't have the same feeling watching this one of wanting to watch it again. Mm-hmm. You know, I watched it on Wednesday night when it first came out. And then I thought like, oh, I'll watch it again on the weekend before we talk about it just to like brush up. And honestly, I didn't. And then you were like, no. Yeah, I didn't do that because I was just like, (laughs) eh. I'm good. Yeah, it was fine. But so there's a lot of it that uh, didn't work for me, I guess I'll say. Well, that's actually a fairly pervasive comment that I've seen. So there's a lot of reviews, A, that amusingly enough do not even engage with the book. They just address it as a sequel film, Mm -hmm. as though the source material doesn't exist, which is odd. But uh, I think a lot of people are commenting on this one doesn't have the rewatchability or the replayability of the first film. And I'm trying to figure out if that's just because we've already gotten the happily ever after. So this feels like a watered down second attempt. I don't know. I think people who really enjoyed the first film, it really is a star turn for Noah Centineo, right? Mm -hmm. This Mm -hmm. is the film that really launched him as a bankable leading man that people fell in love with. He's not in this second movie all that much so i do wonder if part of it is that the character that people really like from the first film isn't here so it's harder to feel that same level of attraction right like really they're fighting for most of the second movie yeah can i read you guys part of the guardian review yeah Mm mm-hmm So they say, it's not, it's one of those Guardian reviews that's just like credited to the Guardian. There's no author. Okay. As sequels go to all the boys, P.S. I Still Love You delivers on the necessary promises. And it goes on about like the things that, you know, that Laura Condor is really appealing and all this stuff. And it says, the mild, kind-hearted humor and well-cushioned heartache of the first film are also more or less replicated. It just has the problem shared by many a romantic comedy sequel that untying a previous happy ending is never quite as satisfying as nodding it to begin with. The film's first director, Susan Johnson, has departed, and in her place, Michael Fimogarni has taken the reins. He once more gives the material a kind of distinctive visual style in sharp-boiled sweet colors that rarely gets lavished on teen comedies, though his touch is a little less tender than Johnson's. Mm. So there's two things that they're getting at here that I like. One is that this film and the book, although because the book has so much else going on about Laura Jean's interior life, I think it's a different experience, but... The film was never going to be as satisfying as the first one. Like, it can't be, right? Yeah, the way it's constructed, it can't be because it's undoing the enjoyment of the first film. 
And the second thing is that what I really liked about the visual signature of this film is that it gets a lot bolder, but I recognize that that sort of is in contrast to what is most rewatchable about the first film which is that it's incredibly cozy like that first movie is so cozy yeah. you could just get back inside it over and over again and when you take out sort of the tender kind of pastelishness of the visuals for the first one you do lose a lot of that even though i find the second one more interesting to watch yeah if i if i can attempt a really awkward metaphor it feels like the first one was made for Netflix for at-home consumption, like yeah. something cozy, something where you just put a blanket on, drink a cup of tea and watch it yeah. and feel really good. This one feels like it was actually intended for theaters. Yeah. It's a much more lavish production. The colors are all intended to pop. We've got more ostentatious direction. And it doesn't feel like it's playing on the same playing field right no yeah. and also i think it's worth noting that there was no anticipation for the first one right it yeah. dropped basically in silence and it was a word of mouth hit more than anything the book had been popular but i mean the book was ya contemporary romance popular not mm -hmm. ya dystopia popular it was the kind of thing that you find and then you tell your friends about because you're like, you guys, you got to watch this movie. It's going to make you feel so good, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. Whereas for this film, there was such wild anticipation. Again, I wonder if there was any version of this film that would have lived up to what people wanted from it because of the source material. Like, it's just a different story. And when you strip away most of the identity kind of questions and just focus on the romance, it's not going to be... Exactly. Yeah. The smiling. first one was like you had this sweet love story that they were trying to navigate and get together. And this one, it just seems like it's all it's all turmoil everywhere she looks, mm -hmm. whether she's fighting with Peter and Peter has the Jen stuff going on. And then with the John Ambrose, she's still torn because she still loves Peter. And so it just seems like it doesn't have the like feel good. Yeah, cozy is a good word for it. Feeling of the first mm -hmm. one. I mean, we are playing with different tropes too, totally. right? Like the first book is explicitly steeped in that YA tradition of a secret fake romance that turns into a real romance, right? It's a tried and true formula. Yeah. Here, we just have a, you know, for lack of a better term, it's a bit of a generic love triangle. Mm -hmm. It doesn't play out the same way because it doesn't have that hint of mischief to it. It feels like, oh, somebody's just going to get their heart broken. Yeah. Like it's literally, don't break my heart. Yeah. And I think that's what is um, disappointing is too strong a word because I found the film perfectly pleasant to watch. I didn't like, mm -hmm. it was not painful to watch or anything. Oh, no. but... Yeah. I agree with you, Jen. I think it's fine. It's yeah, fine. Exactly. <laughs> but because I can't think of another word at this hour in the morning, I'm going to say disappointment. Sure. of, the, of yeah. the film for me is the flattening of that love triangle into something so generic yeah. i really liked this wrestling with the idea of like how many of our especially in youth but it continues as we age like our relationships are so profoundly based on proximity right? yeah like, <laughs> this person got to my life first and this person stays and like especially when you're young right like your friends are the people who you can walk to their house <laughs> from your house yeah. mm -hmm. or that you have a class with <laughs> right and so one of the things that we that she reflects on is like if he hadn't moved away if john ambrose yeah. hadn't moved away and if john ambrose had asked her out to that dance the trajectory of all of their lives would have been different but mm -hmm. it didn't work out that way and so this this acknowledgement of like i don't know that it's not always choice sometimes it's just about context and situation and i really liked that like i thought it was interesting we really see that kind of thinking in ya romance i thought it was really interesting and then in the film it's just like Two boys love me. What will mm -hmm. I do? <laughs> yeah, the usual flattening that we see when we see these adaptations, because at the end of the day, you know, the intended goal is to just really give the audience the feels. Yep. I think a really important distinction between the book and the movie is that in the book, she had to reach out to Peter to get him to come to her. Mm -hmm. But in the movie, because we all want Noah Santaneo to be our big love interest, he was coming to find her and being like, I will fight for you. I will do whatever it takes to mm -hmm. be to beat this guy and get you back. And so that kind of wrapped up the love story a little bit better than her having to go to him instead of him trying to fight for her. I mean, that's a great point, And it's true it across the film. She is much more of an agent in her own life in the book than she is in the film. 
Like, mm-hmm. things keep happening to and at her in the film. As much as I don't like the assassin's plotline from the book, because I just, I really, it was a strong who could care moment for me. But yeah. it is forcing her to go out and be yeah. an actor in her own life. And without that impetus in the film, it's a lot of just, like, waiting for boys to come. And I, that yeah. was disappointing. Yeah. In 2020, like, this is not what I need from my lead actress. No, no. It's a frustrating development because it makes it seem like she is not an agent in her own love affairs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I was especially like, (sighs) there are all these moments in the film where I'm like, does this make any sense outside of the context of the book? Like, when he shows up and he's like, I know you don't like driving in the snow, so I'm here to drive you home. And I'm like, do you know that about her? Like, (laughs) based on what? Do you know that about her? Brenna, there was a scene early on where she talks about how she's a good driver except in the snow. <laughs> oh, really? Okay, yeah, I 100% missed that. <laughs> it's like a throwaway line. Yeah. <sighs> I think it's one of those things where it's the film thinking that it's clever by saying, oh, well, it was just this throwaway piece, but he was paying such close attention that he knows, right? It's the same with when he gives her flowers on the first date and he gives one to Kitty to and Kitty. Kitty says, oh, it's my favorite. And he says, I know. Because he's your perfect internet boyfriend. Which is interesting because part of the complexity of Peter in the book is that he's not, like, he doesn't listen. He doesn't pay a great deal of attention. And, like, it's part of her growth that she... Accepts that. Yeah, like, she sees the other strengths in his character and he doesn't have to be a perfect romantic lead, right? Like, that's kind of the whole point of their arc. And so in the film, it's just like, P.S., he's a perfect romantic lead. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay, well... Do we have any final thoughts on either of these two? Or shall we move into some YA bingo? YA bingo. Oh, sorry. I have two things. Okay. Do it. I thought that, like, I know they can't do this in the movie as much, but in the book, I loved Stormy and her great advice on life and just sort of going out there and, like, grab life by the balls kind of thing and just do whatever makes you feel happy. I kind of loved how she was sort of like an unabashed bluesy. Yes, yes, exactly. And she was encouraging Lara Jean to be that way and to figure out what you want and what you love and what you feel and all this kind of stuff. But in the movie, I know with adaptations, like there's no way you can get all the characters as much as you have them in the book. But I just wish we had gotten more of her. It's weird to have an actress of her stature in that role, though, and not do anything with it. Exactly. They barely, barely did anything with her. I mean, I won't lie, all of the scenes at Bellevue that actually involved the residents, Mm -hmm. it was fine when, you know, it was just Lara Jean and John Ambrose doing their own thing. Like, I love the scene where he plays piano, which is obviously put in there because he can actually sing and play the piano. Right. But it felt almost like a parody of what you would expect an old folks home to be. Like, no, we're not going to address the fact that they're usually not the nicest of places and they don't have a ton of money. This place looks like a lunatics asylum for really, really rich people. I know that I bang this class drum all the time on this show and our listeners are probably like, oh, shut up. But... One of the interesting things is that Laura Jean comes from a pretty privileged socioeconomic background, right? And um, her school, like most of her friends, like there's not a lot of need in her community. And when she goes to the old folks home, it's kind of like the first time she has to work within the constraint of a budget, right? And we have all these moments of Laura Jean kind of realizing that in the book. Like there's a point where she's like, hey, Kitty, let's buy a heart-shaped waffle iron for Valentine's Day. And Kitty's like, "Mm, why? We could just, we have a regular waffle iron that we like don't use. Mm-hmm. You're being silly, right? And so Lara Jean is kind of learning about how, like, oh, the nursing home sucks, right? Yeah, yeah like, it, there's nothing to look forward to. That's why the dance becomes so important. They all hide in their rooms watching Netflix. There's very little programming. They can, <laughs> seriously, <laughs> they learned how to use the internet, and then they all just go on Netflix. There's very little programming. There's very little support. There's no budget. And part of the magic of Lara Jean that she takes no budget and turns it into something like romantic and beautiful like that's where she gets to shine those are all of her skills right and Mm -hmm. so in this version where it's just like they just seem to throw money at old people in this this nursing home and it's clearly shot in like point gray vancouver which is like the most elite part of the city and you're just like yeah there was just this one interesting kind of complicated growth component to the book and you ate it (laughs) 
Well, the film, obviously, this is part of the fantasy, right? Mm -hmm. They don't want to show any kind of actual reality in this world, which is why even this woman who we've never gotten any kind of indication that she necessarily has money, aside from the fact that this retirement home is decked out with all of these rooms where people can just literally sit and... What is that one woman doing? She's like reading people's fortunes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> it's a building that's so big and ostentatious that they can literally just dedicate a room to one woman's passion project. Yeah. yeah. Great. But also like in this climactic moment, Stormy gives Lara Jean yes. this gorgeous prom gown. And all I could think of was old folks don't have money to just no. be throwing away on dresses for young people. No, like, give yeah. me a break. <laughs> and one of the things that keeps happening in the book is the way like Stormy is glamorous in spite of her circumstance, whereas this lady is just rich. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So sorry, Jen, you said you had a second point. Oh, yes. The <laughs> second thing was just the very obvious product placement in the movie. Oh, bubbly. Gosh. Bubbly. We, yes, glass exactly. of bubbly. <laughs> <laughs> we got Subway in the first one. We got Subway yes. again, of course. And yeah, that bubbly uh, when she was making the punch. And John stuff. Ambrose is like pouring a can of bubbly into the punch <laughs> in slow motion. <laughs> I was like, I get it. You're sponsored by Bubbly. Okay, <laughs> let's move on. Got to cut down that $18 million budget somehow. Yes. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> to all the boys I've loved before, P.S., I still sub you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the Subway lunches. That one made no sense in the beginning, too. Like, this girl just loves Subway. Or in the first one, sorry. That girl just loves Subway. And then it's just, like, never really explained why she loves it so much. Yeah. <laughs> because we were paid to love it so. Exactly. So good. I love it. <laughs> okay. Ladies, can I take you to a lovely round of bingo? Yeah. Which actually makes sense in this context because we see them play bingo play in this bingo. movie. Yes. <laughs> okay, so what kinds of things did we see? Bingo! Not a good bingo. Jen's our guest. You want to go first, Jen? Okay. Well, musicality, I guess, when mm -hmm. we've got John Ambrose playing the piano. Mm -hmm. And the karaoke scene. Oh, yes, karaoke, <laughs> yep. And honestly, this is another Let It Snow where it feels like it was partially written to accommodate as many pop songs as we could fit onto a soundtrack. Yes, yeah. yes it was. Although I will never not love that down-tempo version of Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Oh, yeah. Mm, yeah. Okay, we got Perfect Date for sure. Oh, yeah. At the beginning. Yeah. And Sexual Awakening. I'm calling it a Sexual Awakening by Lara Jean having that conversation with Peter of being yeah. like, I don't want to have sex with you. And him being like, uh, I liked how they did it in the movie, though. Actually, here is one thing I did like where they hey. had that conversation and they sort of made that metaphor. And he was like, when you want to go base jumping, I would love to go there with you. It felt yeah. a little bit I less like that too. awkward. I kind of liked that we had ghost representations. I don't think it's going to work for everybody, but I kind of liked that Largine's fears were manifest in the form of Jen sitting in the back seat. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That's it a thing for me. that you can do in a movie that won't work in a book. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Okay. Brenna, what have you got? Okay, I've got CanCon because this was shot at mm -hmm. Point Grey Secondary School, which is like the fanciest of fancies. Obviously, Love Triangle. Yes, yeah. of course. I still consider John Corbett to be stunt casting because I am an old lady. <laughs> I knew you would. <laughs> um, there are some pretty subtle allusions to classic lit. There's some Romeo and Juliet quotes. Obviously, the Annabelle Lee poem is significant, so I'm going to call that one too. Mm -hmm. And I want to say growing apart or like yeah. posthumous growing apart because she really is trying to negotiate that former friend relationship. And I think that's an important part of it, especially in the book. And then finally, poor old Lucas, our queer secondary character. Mm -hmm. And actually, Chris is our slutty secondary character. So, yep. yeah. Yeah, it's two for one. Yep. Okay, so I'm not going to lie. I'm going to hit this film with some rich people problems because yeah. the conflict is kind of BS, right? It's like, oh, well, we don't have anything real to concern ourselves with. So let's make up some relationship drama. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Uh, we're still dealing with some dead parent issues. True. I did like the fake skiving scene. Yeah, in the film. that was cute. I yeah. thought that was so well done because Miss Rothschild gets so little to do in the film yeah. version. Mm -hmm. It gave her a moment to be like, I like you just as you are, history and all, for her yes. dad. I loved yes. that. That was really heartwarming, actually. I yeah. Agree. 
I think one of the reasons it works is because it's an original scene for the film. So yeah. they had to deliberately think about, okay, if we can't do all this other stuff with Miss Rothschild because we don't have a dog in the movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's an odd choice to hamstring yourself, but okay. Yeah. A little bit. Like how hard would it have been to have thrown in a puppy? Yeah. I guess maybe the production was like, no, we don't want to have to get a dog trainer in here. Yeah. <laughs> But I thought it was a very nice, deliberately constructed, like, okay, we've got to do a lot with just a couple of scenes with her. So how do we best do this? So yeah. I really like actually all of the scenes with Miss Rothschild. Yeah, me too. And I think, I mean, that was one of those scenes where it's just in Laura Jean's head in the book. So the way they realize it and to have Peter there as well, it's sort of like these two people who get this secret glimpse inside the family that most people don't have access to. Yeah. Yeah. I got two more. I'm going to say gaslighting, particularly for the book and particularly oh. for the way that Peter handles yeah. his relationship with Jen. Yeah. Yes. Just oh my tell gosh. her what's going on for the love of It's such a false conflict. And it's, it's one of those things where when you're reading YA, you've just got to let it go. But yeah. I won't lie. It really bothered me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Book. I was like, just tell her. You don't have to be so obscure about it. Yeah, well, exactly. Like, you don't have to tell her the exact details, but you could be like, yeah, her parents are going through a really rough time. It's hard on her. Like, it's not clear to me why he doesn't just say that because he doesn't even give her that. No. It's just the family stuff. And then <laughs> Chris is just like, oh, I don't know. What? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Makes no sense. <sighs> yeah. And then the final one, just because I was frustrated with the way that Peter is written and also the kind of shoddy things that he does to her, I'm classifying him as a mediocre white boy. I knew you were going to go on that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I will highlight the fact that that does give us a line. So yay! we get a bingo. Oh, yay. Bingo. Right. Uh, we're way too happy when we get a line on the card we constructed ourselves joe well i mean it happens so rarely considering we constructed the card ourselves yeah and literally it's just the order that i put these in if i had to put them in other orders we might be getting more but it's fine it's fine uh okay so i think that brings us to the end jen this was so Aww. great thank you guys so much for having me i had so much fun so much fun Thanks for coming. Thank you so much. So before we sign off, Jen, uh -huh. if people want to chat with you about To All the Boys I've Loved Before 2, mm -hmm. how might they get a hold of you? Do you have an Instagram or a Twitter? I do. I have an Instagram and it's at proxy23. Nice. If you want to get a hold of us to talk about the show in general, you can use the hashtag HKHSPod on the Twitters. If you want to get a hold of me personally to tell me, oh gosh, I don't know. Stop talking about class. Yeah. <laughs> That's at Brenna C. Gray. And spoiler alert, the answer will be no. Uh, <laughs> Joe, where do they find you? You can find me at B stole my remote and that's the letter B. And if you've got something longer for us, Joe's really interested in your John Ambrose McLaren fan fiction. You can find us at <laughs> hkhspod at gmail.com. I'd rather just have like shirtless pictures of the actor. But sure. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Next regular sode, we are Ugh. diving into, uh, diving back into the world of Cichlet, I believe. Yes, we are. <laughs> me and Earl and the Dying Girl. Yeah, so yeah. in two weeks, we'll be back with that. And then next week, we've got your March forecast. I'm not sure how well these are being received. Maybe people need to let us know, either yeah. using the hashtag or the email. Are we doing too many of these? We're yeah. not getting a lot of feedback on them, so let us know. Annually was too much. We couldn't keep up, but maybe monthly is too frequent. Let us know. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And until next time, I guess I will see you on the page. Yes, and I will see you on the screen.